on our earth, before writing was invented, before the printing press was invented, poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by presents, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman, and this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us, makes us think, and with imagination and courage, changes the world. You know, with the presidential elections just around the corner and midterms in a few weeks now, we are turning to the not-so-favorite pastime of politics. How does poetry and politics rhyme? Many of you know Rick Moody for his extraordinary novels, but how about the poet in him, the poet who's taken on the whole history of the U.S. in his presidential series, and it takes on the presidents one by one from John Adams to Andrew Jackson, Nixon, LBJ, Obama, Trump. Rick Moody was born in New York City. His first novel, Garden State, was the winner of the 91 Editor's Choice Award from the Pushcart Press, and it was published in 1992. The Ice Storm was published in 94, and uh, the film version, directed by Ang Lee, was released by Fox Searchlight in 97, winning the best screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. Little Brown and Company issued The Black Veil, a memoir with digressions, which was a winner of the Nami Kin Book Award and the Penn Martha Albrand Prize for Excellence in the Memoir. His novel, The Diviners, appeared in 2005, winning the Mary Shelley Award, and his most recent novel is Hotels of North America. We're talking to him up near Boston in Cranston City Line, Rhode Island. He's teaching at Tufts these days. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good, Bob. It's really nice to get to chat with you again. Here's our chance. Um, how did poetry come to you, by the way? I mean, we all know you as, as a novelist. Um, it's a sneaky little thing that you've been doing with these poems. Um, I always wrote poetry. In fact, I finished poems before I ever finished a novel when I was a, a would-be in my teens. Um, so I always did it. Uh, I never perhaps did it with the same uh avarice that i wrote fiction later on i really you know i went to grad school for fiction but there was always poetry happening um and then in the 90s you know i had only a a dim awareness of the kind of experimental fringe of poetry i didn't really i didn't understand language poetry when i was in grad school i didn't really under didn't understand the origins and a, a couple of things happened. One was, um, that I, uh, really started understanding and getting into Charles Bernstein. And then the other thing, frankly, Bob was, um, was when the New York and poets cafe tour thing was happening. And, uh, you all came to Bennington when I was teaching. Oh, there. that was like our first gig actually. You know? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I heard all that stuff, you know, uh, Edwin Torres and, um, Maggie Estep was there, a few other people and, and the, you know, democratization of poetry that seemed to me to, in here, in that presentation, that was really important for me. And, and so I started experimenting with uh, collage poetry and process-oriented poems, um, and, it, and it became really a thing for me, really uh, a way out of fiction. When I felt locked into fiction or blocked by fiction, I would often go back to making stuff um, in this kind of cutting and pasting way with, yep. with poems. Yep. And, yep. and when I began the presidential thing, just to put the punctuation mark on this was during the, uh, Monica Lewinsky crisis period of the Clinton presidency. Yeah. I got so excited by the mix of, of texts and languages sort of orbiting around that crisis. Like, 
uh, Clinton gave Lewinsky Vox by Nicholson Baker. And that just struck me as an incredible image. You know? <laughs> so I wanted to funnel all this stuff into some kind of weird collage, uh, tornado helix of languages and discourses about the, the Clinton presidency. Well, you know, you're, you know, you're taking up my job over there now, Rick, because uh, that description, that uh, the cyclone of language that you do have in your poems is so extraordinary. And let's just give another shout out to Nicholson Baker, who does deal with uh, poetry in his uh, Sprinkler series, and, uh, and wonderfully so. That's great to hear about that. I had forgotten Clinton's presence. I wonder what Monica thought of that book. <laughs> um, but, um, but yes, the, you call it collage. Um, I guess some people would call it appropriation. Interesting that you mentioned the language poets because uh, I guess, I don't know whether they are accepting you into them, whether you're in their social milieu, but you <laughs> definitely have objectivist tendencies, brother. Um, I, I think a lot of, uh, of Charles Reznikoff, when I read your poetry, his, his testimony and Holocaust is, uh, his books that, that are strictly, you know, from court, uh, proceedings. You do that a lot in, in, uh, in your presidential poems. Yeah. I love the Reznikoff books. Uh, you know, I think those books are really important. There are ways that Patterson by William Carlos Williams to me mm. has a has a similar ambition too. So I want to preserve this idea that it's not, um, you know, like sometimes um, uh, found poetry is just presented texts whole without editing, without um, you know monkeying around at all, as though those were, um, you know, the thing in itself. Like that great book of. Um, the Yankees broadcaster guys slipping. Phil my, Rizzuto. Yeah, the, the Rizzuto, the Rizzuto poems, poems I think yeah. are extraordinary, but they're also, you know, funny and gimmicky. And I'm hoping to get deep in there, sort of uh, more like Reznikoff, more like William Carlos Williams, uh, where we understand ourselves as being like a lens opening to all the all the discourses and all the levels of discourse that are happening out there and that the poem gets made out of that. Well, you certainly do that in your, uh, in this series of Trump poems that you've done that you call 17s, although they are neither the 17 syllables of the haiku, nor are they an, a 17 word, uh, uh, American sentence of uh, Allen Ginsberg, your 17, well, just describe what your 17 is, what so, your 17 is. Um, a lot of the, I've done, a, you know, a fair amount of Trump-related projects, uh, and they've all been, you know, reflexive in a way, like I would like not to, uh, but the sort of, um, orbiting intensity of discourses around Trump is so overpowering that sometimes it's been hard to, to look away. And these projects have been, uh, you know, ways to deal with the, uh, uh, kind of information overload of that period. So one thing that was particularly, uh, fascinating, horrifying, uh, from the last couple of years of the Trump administration, of course, was the, um, you know, obsessive, a paranoid psychotic discourse of the QAnon community. And um, so I get really into the kind of projective hermeneutic intensity of the Q people. And um, so I went through the, the 17, strictly speaking, are, are as follows. I went through Trump's texts, uh, his tweets, one by one. Yeah. Through every tweet of the... Um, of the Trump presidential period that are all collected, not the retweets, but the ones composed by him. And I picked out the 17th word. And so the 17s are, um, each one is 17 words. That is that each, where each line consists of the 17th word of a Trump tweet. And they need to sort of be heard as a whole because they have a, 
in their weird um, omnidirectional way have a sort of um, subliminal narrative of the whole Trump period. That's sort of how I see it anyway. Wonderful. Yes. Well, now you get to join the Ulipo guys too when you have that kind of a constraint. We're going to be, I think the only thing to do now, Rick, is to, uh, is to hear them. I mean, you've set them up beautifully. We know that we got to hear the whole batch of them. And uh, so I just ask our listeners to tune their ears to every 17th word of Donald Trump's tweets as uh, played back through the poet who was able to get through the QAnon pizza parlors to, uh, <laughs> to to find some meaning and solace in these words, to turn them into poetry. Okay, so is that a good enough setup for you, Rick? Yeah. That'll work. All right, here we go. Seventeens. One. January will unceremoniously our country, country, announce never our power, plus even want, see, arrive, Republican, emboldened. Two. Working they, guardians, see, vary, these done Georgia, the states can it the have unpopular vaccines will three had wisconsin therefore far power josh just fraud professionals cannot leadership and states years incoming election wins Four. Poorly the must must break of election of vital January true system out do more now secure. Five. Took others now the at big terminate president how telling and thinks think where prior my it six ridiculous their slow rigged fault stupidly state all been dumped up storms too is senator on lead seven vote have it reviews election from of to country Percent. This results. Relationship weighted have state specifically. Eight. Well, far voters certify bad states, ballots, Democrats, swing, favored on, but Joe on Republicans. Also you. Nine. Media most I would it me of started of that the too realistic our 2016 of the 10. Fraud overturned a suit on late when numbers I veto falsely that win do tirelessly and 11. And what send a you know national this run presidential voting would forced verification tech were Republican? 12. Bigger of the companies like says signed and support concerning a that easily Trump in it. 13. Then don't who defending, perhaps, then Philadelphia, 80 million gone, turn, is really once alternatives, 
100% full talking. 14. Fabrication Abrams on happy does best there. Correct to am she that you hide, not cast. 15. To members and thousands, this the a rebuilding unprecedented tally would and and must place the the 16. Election votes voted giant canvassers fraudulent constitution place they charge to USA powers in bin will same. 17. Meaningless reporting this harassment that be were counting not again, those work a trying by signatures, D.C. I'm wondering, I don't know if, how many times a poem like that gets read on the radio, you know, and what's someone who was tuning in uh, during the middle of, of Rick Moody's 17, his poems from the words of Donald Trump, from his tweets. Um, what do you think, what do you think that a person would think if they tuned in in the middle of that, Rick? I'm just, I guess I'm asking what, do, you know, what do, these, these poems generally are thought of as things that live on the page, yet you performed them really well and they took on these meanings. What was happening there? Yeah, I think, you know, what I'm always interested in with this collage uh, approach is that it's the language itself that's expressing, right? Like it stops being like, what does the word I mean in a poem like this? It, you know, allegedly was composed by Donald Trump, but I've prized it out of its warehouse. It's certainly not an I that's me, the writer of the poem. So whose I is the I in the poem? I feel like it's the language itself, you know, that's sort of what I do is I, in this case, I'm taking political language and sort of letting it live out there. And its ramifications are like when you throw a pebble, a pebble in the pond, you know, and it ripples. So I think of it like that. If you turned on in the middle, you'd probably think I had, you know, uh, perhaps a, an aphasia or something. Maybe uh, there was static in the radio, you know, <laughs> and it started stuttering at you, but it's going the, the, you know. Um, wow. Well, I guess we, we could parse this, this, this poem, these poems, um, but I'm going to leave that <laughs> to, to, I'm going to, I think we should put the, the text of the poem up there, Ram, so that people can, can can see it because it's it's it really is wonderful it also is sort of a you know it reading into it it gets, it's sort of a condemnation of the hyperbolic frenzy of 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 trump's tweets and you leave the capitals in there for the ones that he often put everything in all caps um but um it, it also is a it's a way to find to let the reader, listener, find a meaning out of, you know, it, in, in, is it, I mean, is it our QAnon, this kind of language poetry? Yeah, maybe some kind of <laughs> uber sophisticated version or, or counter narrative. Like in a way, I think that's what it is, sort of counter narrative. Mm. It's like mm. taking the language back and forcing it to do something else in a way to strip it of some of its you know, in the QAnon case, some of it's fatuity, you know, it's like mm. those interpretations are bunk. And so I've offered a different interpretation in the hopes that maybe there's some way by, by prying it loose that we diffuse it a little bit. Right. And it's, look, it's courageous of you, you know, even I think in, in the, uh, N plus seven. I mean, you just you take the seventh noun in a dictionary to work off of. You are not concerned about parts of speech during this. We do have a's and the's that wind up being the 
the 17th word of a tweet, and they just are in there too. It ain't filler, folks. It's language. <laughs> and it's funny, Bob, you know, when I was doing them, when I was going through the tweets and I would find another the, I would go, fuck, that's too many thes. <laughs> Why can't I get one of those words like, uh, you know, uh, Department of Homeland Security or something? <laughs> be way more interesting. Um, so, uh, listen, what do you... Trump looks like he may return for another presidential run. What do you do? You, what do you expect from him in your work? Are the seventeens going to continue? He's this archetypal antagonist. You've brought him down into the into the the uh, the, the ring of poetry. Um, do you think you're going to uh, take him on again? Continue to. Well, you know, the way the project has worked so far, Bob, is that during each presidential administration, I try to do one poem about the sitting president and one poem from the past. That's sort of been the way. And I feel like this 17s and some of the other Trump-related stuff closed the book on uh, 2016 to 2020, and now I'm laboring over what I'm going to do about Joe Biden. But if Trump, on the off chance that the, you know, the tightening legal nooses, the multiple nooses around his neck don't take, and uh, he isn't forbade from running for office because he's a, a felon, uh, on the off chance that that's the case, I will write a second one that will be generated from the material of whatever it is, 2024 to, yeah, to yeah. Uh, 2039. <laughs> Something not to look forward to. Yeah. Um, so you're working on the Biden now, but uh, uh, can you give us some hints about how that's going? Well, it has to be that it, that, um, that certain, um, uh, you know, themes emerge from the presidency that then become the material. I was going to say, you know, we were going to talk about the Obama poems at one point. And part of the problem with Obama, uh, besides the fact that Obama is just a first rate writer and it's very hard to kind of top or circumnavigate the excellence of his uh, memoirs, for example, um, mm, besides that is the problem that there wasn't a significant crisis in the Obama presidency of the same cast as, for example, the Nixon presidency or, you know, Clinton, which I began because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Mostly the, the crises of these presidencies have driven the poems because there's been some kind of textual flurry around them. Um, and Obama was doubly hard because the guy just did a great job and the no drama Obama epithet <laughs> kind of rings true, you know, sort of true. And Biden so far as has, I think, conducted himself as though, you know, less is more in terms of uh, public persona and stuff, which I admire, but it makes it harder to make a poem. So I don't know yet. Yeah, and uh, so w which which comes first, the the uh, the crisis or or the uh, poetic form? Oh, the form comes from the crisis in a way. Okay, like okay. as you can see, that I use tankas for Obama. Um, you know, the tanka being a, a Japanese ceremonial poetry yeah, form. Yeah. Why, well, would you? Why don't we just read the tankas? Is, do you, are you up for that? Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Okay, Obama Tonkas. I'll explain after we, we do it. Number one, I saw the mainland before my 11th day. It was the summer of Chicago, once before. Its presence disturbed me now. Two, I have continents on my 11th day, I. It's now summer in Chicago. Time is before. Your presence annoys me now. 
three. I saw continents of Chicago time before. It's now summer on the eleventh day before. Your presence disturbs me now. Number four. You said you saw what? Let it go. Just let it go. Yes, it is my fault. I'm the eleventh. Yes, you are. So ugly, too. That was Rick Moody reading his Obama Tonkas, if you're just tuning in. He was not directing, yes, you are so ugly, directly to you, although every poet, Rick's a poet, didn't know that is uh speaking directly to you how did what so tanka as you said it's a japanese form a a haiku with uh with two uh more long lines five lines um but these there seems to be another kind of form working its way through this what is it sort of sestina ish um yeah, I picked a really small set of words, and then I tried to make each tonka out of the set of words, sort of like, uh, you know, Doctor Doctor Zeus writing a one red fish, blue fish with only you know whatever it is, one hundred and forty nine words of one syllable. Like I tried to really limit the palate, and um, as I was saying before. I went through, I would say, at least five different versions of the Obama poem. And at one point, I was teaching a a class at Princeton in a technique of appropriation, uh, appropriation across all the arts. Um, and, um, And I had the class make the Obama poem with me, which was really a delight. We all made lines. Um, one, one student, no, actually, it was my co-teacher, uh, John O'Connor, who teaches painting at Sarah Lawrence. He was the he was the co-instructor. He made a list of every uh, color word in the entirety of Obama's memoir, which was amazing. You know, really incredible. Um, so, yeah, yeah, dreams, dreams from my father. Um, so anyway, we made a bunch of poems, but I kept feeling like. God, this guy is a great writer and I'm doing something less good than him, you know? And that's why I've sort of agonized and really the the Tonkas right now are a placeholder for if I ever get it right. They have they they carry they carry, you know, they carry across. They give us a, another way of looking at at that no drama Obama presidency. Trump somehow seems so alluring, you know, uh, for this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And it is, it is like, uh, that crises engender textuality, you know, and, and there's less of that. And Obama represented his presidency. He did a really good job at it. And, and in a way it's very hard to get in the way of that or to comment on it. I don't want to comment on it except to say, that's a guy I really admire. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of of admiration and lack thereof, there's a your Nixon poem to me seems like uh, one that both is that kind of pastiche you're talking about the collage from different sources, much different from the others. Um, it's called. Nick Themeron? Am I pronouncing that right? I think it's Nick Themeron. Thank you, Mr. Accent the Syllable. <laughs> Nick Themeron. Okay. And what does that mean to you? Uh, it means uh, an entire course of a day, both day and night. Okay. I see right now that as I'm looking at it, there is a footnote here that tells us that that source, uh, no, it doesn't tell us where that, where you sourced that word, but it gives us a source of the, of the, uh, of the poem where you, where you picked out. I mean, it's an extraordinary mix. You want me to read it here? Abuse of power, 
edited by Cutler, The Coven and Return to Vorkuta by David St. John, and Six Crises of Richard M. Nixon, The Journal of George Fox, and Miscellaneous, miscellaneous Pamphlets on Quakerism. So what a mix. Um, how, did it, how did you decide, where did, how did that come about, that you'd pick these sources for a poem about uh, Richard Nixon? Um, well, the first thing I want to say is I'm sure you feel this way too, Bob, but Nixon, the Nixon presidency for me was a very high impact presidency. And I, as a kid, was riveted by uh, the Watergate hearings. I, I was, I think, 12 during the Watergate hearings, but I watched them all or, or a great portion of them. And really felt like um, uh, that was like a, an a, an opening outward for me of what of what political life was, and it was the idea that political life was utterly corrupt. I had some you know mild sense of the horror of the Vietnam conflict, but I was so small when that really began, you know. Um, but for me, the corruption of Watergate was was. Uh, like a, a coming awake and a maturation ritual, I guess that's what I'd say. So embarking on, on Nixon for me in the, in the context of these poems was exciting because it's really going back to a kind of ur crisis, a, you know, a, a sort of generational trauma for me as a kid. Um, and so that was the way in. I really used the technique in the same way I'd used it in the Clinton poem, which was to amass a ton of material and boil down. But I felt at that time I was reading George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, and I understood the Nixon phenomenon to be, you know, really wound into the history of Quakerism because Nixon came from a Quaker family. And um and that Quakerism you know, had something to say about this. So there was never a moment where I wasn't going to include Quakerism. But also, you know, as anyone knows who who um, was interested in Nixon and studied Nixon, studied the Checkers speech, for example, there's this kind of Nixon argot that's like a faux, low diction, uh, you know, that's that's like uh super powerful like it's easy to imitate you can sound like nixon um and it's and it's there's something glorious about that it's like a kind of 40s 50s um tough guy argot that he pretends to have admixed with some you know social woodenness or something it's really fascinating well said yeah <laughs> it's kind of like his the 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 shadow on his face uh you know is uh is uh, is 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 a film noir yeah you know, he's speaking through that that mouth there um let's just take a step back for a minute we'll get back to our to our our president there but um you said you amassed a, a a a great deal of material. I'm just not used to hearing a a poet talk about amassing a great deal of material for their uh, for their poems. Just like I'm not used to seeing footnotes in a poem like this one has. But um, this does seem like the technique of a novelist that's uh, working. Is that you know is this a place where your two disciplines overlap? I mean, I definitely think this Nixon one is really narrative. So in a way, I would say, you know, it's splitting the difference somewhere in the middle where it definitely has fictive energy to it. Because it, you know, what's most interesting to me in the poems is when they, when they do seem to imply a little bit of story or have some kind of story freight to them. Um, yeah, I find that beautiful. And that happens here. To me, it, it relates to poetry of old, you know, um, like, uh, uh, you know, when poetry was heroic narrative work. Um, and I love all that. You know, I'm a like keen, keen Dante reader. I've read Dante like four times and I love, love reading Dante and the Aeneid and stuff like that. So the idea that poetry can have a narrative capability, though it's less contemporary, doesn't seem far-fetched to me. Um, but at the same time, I did feel over the course of the presidents, 
that this kind of, you know, super heavy narrative line, it looks on the page very prose-like. I wanted to get away from that. And in a way, the the Tonkas with Obama in the 17s, the whole idea was to try to um, strip away and leave, you know, something like a more um, kind of polytheistic idea of poetry mm-hmm. than this um, heavy old narrative version, which looks to me like Pound a little bit, you know, or like a Interesting Olson's how you pick from things like the Cantos. Same thing with Maximus, same yeah. thing um, with Patterson, yeah. where you're taking from these different places. Um, but I got to say, uh, we didn't say when you were reading the 17s, but your voice did plug in a bit of a narrative. I guess it's the way you see a face in everything they say. Mm. You know, somehow, no matter what you're reading, even if it's the 17th word of every 17th tweet, you're still, uh, when, you know, when Rick Moody is, is, is reading down that snake, it comes out as, a, as some kind of a tale. Yeah. Um, look, maybe we can read a little bit here. I would love to hear some of the Nixon because it is such a, a clash of, of different sources and different tones. It all seems to be spilling out of that uh, the missing section of the Watergate tape somehow. <laughs> okay, I'll give it a shot. Nick Themeron. Thus he lived and sojourned among us, and as he lived, so he died. A hot, sultry Washington morning. She loosened my tie, but I opened my suit jacket myself. Those sons of bitches are killing me. Shoots from the hip, misses the target. They beat me exceedingly, threw me down and turned me over a hedge. Afterwards dragged me through a house into the street, stoning and beating me, so that I was all over besmeared with blood and dirt. It repels him to do these horrible things, but they've got to be done. Never in history a more sensational investigation started by a less impressive witness. His main stock in trade is he's a master of disguise. Over the dark Atlantic, stewards and stewardesses plied him with fine viands. I had a strange dream last night. I saw things which cannot be uttered. He pressed a concealed button and the cartridge began to turn. I could visualize my naked, beaten body collapse and sink into a mire of bottomless ooze. Then I spoke to the people from the graveyard. Among his followers were those whose sole function was to maintain his peace of mind. Therefore, what the man does, God does. Standing there in their expensive, well-made business suits, wearing rubber gloves, shouting, Don't shoot! The police came in. The infinite can be reached by wiping out all marks of the finite. As I age, I find my life increasingly disordered. The constables gave me some blows over my back with their willow rods. He talked about the whimpering, simpering weaklings at the university. Oh, the blows! punchings, beatings that we underwent, survivors all, unreasoning. They should not have bugged the candidate's plane. The beer was a false friend. Because I would not drink with them, they struck me with their clubs. 
I was moved to cry against all sorts of music. History shows that truth has generally appeared first among a small minority. Goddamn people around here won't read anything. The sound of my door closing on the day's last client was louder than a detonating grenade. The back of my neck began to feel cold. There are two things, and each is bad. One is to lie, and the other is to cover up. Two, after the narrative of an attempt to push him over the cliffs, the account continues. Here is what happened. The singer sang. It seemed as though her ode was to darkness, telling of a time before man, Stop! My liberal friends don't love me anymore. Stop! Crisis, by its nature, is usually personal. Just whatever it is, slice it off. I lost interest in eating and skipped meals without even being aware of it. Jolly well bullshit and all that sort of thing. She freed one arm and unhooked the back of her scarlet dress. At the sight of the woman eating, he began to salivate unwittingly. The ability to be cool, confident, and decisive is not inherited. Danger surrounded a lone agent operating in a foreign milieu, kidnapping, providing prostitutes uh, to weaken the opposition. We sat on some dilapidated rocking chairs on his front porch, overlooking the rolling countryside. He replaced the pumpkin in its original place, in the patch. They brought dog whips and horse whips threatening to whip me. They put me in a nasty, stinking prison. As he took most delight in sheep, so he was very skillful in them. He pressed the pocket of his coat and felt the crackle of documents. Well, I didn't, but he did, and so on, and so on, and so on. We are caught in a tragedy of history. An unsuccessful attempt at suicide that same night. The danger of throwing any baby to the wolves is you always just make the wolves more hungry. Looking back, I can understand how he must have felt. His career was gone. His reputation was ruined. His wife and children had been humiliated. The cushion hurtled into the pistol, deflecting it, then into the man's face. Fangs of flame shot from under the bed, and an ear-splitting detonation hurled him against the wall. Mind the light. God is not far off. He needs no vicar. I saw something, an awareness of light rather than light itself. Unfortunate that there were so few television sets. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. See, these are very moral men. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't screw around. They love their families. They hauled me out and stoned me. He answered in a voice full of despair and resignation like Lady Macbeth, saying in effect, Out! Damned spot! Those who fail are those who are overcome. Keep 
to yea and nay in all things. I was struck, even blind, that I could not see. Oh, the incredible treachery of that son of a bitch! This damn thing is a chicken shit thing! All his poise gone now, the burden of the presidency, the awful loneliness. Hope you liked God Bless America at the end. Sounds like a sign-off at the end of a day of the all those television sets. And so much like Nixon to uh, to ask us what we thought of his use of God Bless America at the end of his speech. That was Rick Moody reading Nick Themeron, the uh, an ode to Richard Nixon in multi voices. Um, it seemed to me that you're in your your reading of it that each of the sources or manage to have its own voice in your reading of the poem, you know, um, and there are the, the way that Nixon's own voice comes in is sort of does feel like the, uh, you know, the narrative kind of, and, but it's so great to hear the Quaker influence, both in their texts and popping up in his mind. Like when he talks about the, the morality of these of 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 the of the the what the, how do you call the Watergate thugs? I assume that's what he's talking about there. The people who who don't who don't they don't drink. Yeah, they, they got to be moral characters. I'm a Quaker. <laughs> I know all about it. Um, what a great what a great poem. What a a great evocation of uh, of of Nixon. Complete with footnotes, by the way. Um, dear audience, I think that we should put that poem up there, too, so you can see these footnotes. For example, on the on the first page, you've got uh, for uh, never in history a more sensational investigation started by a less impressive witness. What a great clause that is. His main stock in trade is he's a master of disguise. You have a footnote there that goes down and says, I am also fond of birds. Okay. I, I know you're not supposed to ask the poet what it means, but maybe if it's a footnote, you're able to ask the poet what it means. It's a great line. I am also fond of birds, or I am also fond of birds. Uh, I'm just going to duck. Via <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. ducks. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, you can read it yourselves, and uh, it's just a s sensational work um, of, you know, true, you know, true cut up. You know, it, it ain't the Burroughs kind. I guess it is the Burroughs kind, but it's um, it's a Rick Moody kind. You know, where he gets the sources, the history sources together. Uh, you you do give. Uh, Credit to David St. John. I'm assuming that's not the poet, David St. John. Yeah. You know, some stuff I just can't remember where I got, Bob, because this was a pretty, pretty long time ago. Okay. But I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's because David St. John was the pseudonym of, uh, of Howard Hunt. Right. Who wrote two, those two novels, oh. as you said. So that's where it's that yeah, David exactly, St. John. Exactly. So apologies yeah. to poet David St. John out there, who I know is listening to this. Hi, David. Um, so you weren't around when Jackson, Adams, and Grant were president. Um, why did you write about them? How did you pick them? And, and what do these distinct characters tell us about our democracy and country today? Um. You know, with the older poems, I really picked the president's older, meaning dealing with a, you know, a, a far gone portion of American history. I picked those ones often when I didn't really know anything about the president in question. And I knew that the research process would be really exciting. And I think when I did Adams, for example, there had been that 
that HBO show about atoms. And mm -hmm. I was like, huh, mm -hmm. I should learn about atoms. Everyone's interested in atoms. So there was, it was really easy to get a lot of material at that point. Um, but I picked, uh, I think after Nixon or not long after Nixon, for example, I decided to do Franklin Pierce. And uh, one reason I decided to do him is that he's often considered among the very worst presidents. Um, and, uh, and so I was interested in kind of counterposing that against reading about Nixon. What would it be like to read uh, Franklin Pierce? And you, you probably know this, Bob, but Franklin Pierce and Nathaniel Hawthorne were very close friends. Um, and in fact, uh, Hawthorne's custom house job was a, a political appointment by Pierce. And so he was like a whole, uh, and Pierce's politics were abhorrent. Pierce is a, just a punk, a horrible person. Um, and uh, so I was really interested to go read up on Pierce and see how this writer I liked, Nathaniel Hawthorne, could possibly have been interested in this, you know, um, uh, slavery apologist pig. And um, it was really interesting. Like, so in, at each turn, when I've sort of performed this operation that can take six months to a year to do the research for some of these, um, uh, you know, I, I learned so much. So like I did Monroe at one point and I learned uh, all that Monroe had had to do with, uh, he was like a big guy on the banking system. So I learned a ton about that at that point. Every one of these has a, a sort of a twist and a turn that really teaches me. I didn't know that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne actually wrote a biography of Franklin Pierce. Yeah, you know? that's one of the lesser works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, my goodness, my goodness. So it's, uh, and I know that in the Adams, there's, you pretty much are quoting him all the way through. Is that right? There's a lot of Adams, yeah. And with Pierce, yeah. too, because the weird thing yeah. is, for all these guys now, you can get all the presidential speeches. And actually, Pierce was kind of a good speechifier. So I found myself sort of in some kind of curious agony because I disagreed with many of his uh, beliefs, such as they were. But I did kind of like the speeches. And so when that voice is really great, and Adams's voice is really great. You know, you want to use. Yeah, really. And uh, the incredible rhythms, you know, the language was so different then. And people, you know, the, the good talkers were still good talkers. And that's what the poets want to have around, you know. So we're coming out of. No, we're not. But we're in the COVID era. During the lockdown, how did you how did you deal with that? Well, um, you know, I have a, a very young son. So like many parents, I was in like the, the kind of, um, 14 hour a day, 12, 14 hour a day, uh, parenting thing, uh, and all that goes with that. So what I experienced of, of COVID with respect to writing and literature was, um, sort of greater amounts of fragmentation, fragmented attention and stuff like that. And it's possible that this, uh, uh, you know, 17's project relating to Trump and all the Trump stuff that I've done has been uh, affected by, or perhaps even prominently affected by a kind of reduced ability to concentrate in the way that I concentrated 20 years ago. 25 years ago when I started doing all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the uh, presidents that we haven't uh, hit on, well, the one you keep mentioning as sort of the, uh, you know, the, the Ur poet was uh, Bill Clinton and the Lewinsky affair. I'm wondering if you can uh, read us Bill and we can talk about that one. Okay, here we go. It generally leads a solitary life or lives in pairs. We do not know precisely the rate of growth of the young. In immature birds, the neck is reddish brown. 
too soon marred are those so early made. A lot of hugging, holding hands sometimes. He always used to push the hair out of my face. Both briskly preen their feathers. I'm an insecure person. Dynamic gliding is used in particular by large seabirds. All Americans are entitled to enjoy a private family life. With love's light wings did I o'erperch these walls. We were both aware of the volume, and sometimes I bit my hand so that I wouldn't make any noise. The acoustic performances depend on various internal and external factors. The constant use of the beak inevitably causes wear and tear. Please be my friend. The true thing is shading into the imagined thing, all right? Many of the 30 or so gifts reflected his interests in history, antiques, cigars, and frogs. This is a matter of sex between consenting adults. For never was a story of more woe. The difference in quality between territories makes it more convenient for a female to choose an already paired male. He needed to acknowledge that he helped fuck up my life. Harming him is the last thing in the world I wanted to do. Classification of birds. Pheasant, grouse, gull, loon, heron, coot, stork. You want me out of your life. I guess the signs have been clear for a while. We met, we wooed, and made exchange of vow. Flight is undulating and irregular. I may be subject to the upbraidings of all who are now witnesses of the present solemn ceremony, and what I assume you shall assume. The girl floats around in her nightgown. Come on, it's me. I intend to reclaim my family life for my family. She had complained that he was making no effort to get to know her. She wanted to have sexual intercourse with him at least once. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. She told me I looked fat in the dress. The nest is made in a hole in rocks or in a tree, often near water. What the meaning of the word is, is. I thought I fell in love with this person who I thought was such a good person. I'm sorry to bother you with this. Every day can't be sunshine. Rick Moody reading uh, the first of his presidential poems, this one for Bill Clinton. It generally leads a solitary life or lives in pairs. Um, so the, I know Romeo and Juliet is in there. Yeah. Um, and we got the transcripts of, uh, of, of Bill and Monica. Um, there's some bird, you know, some bird book is there. Is that where the title comes from? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And Vox, yeah. there's a couple of lines from Vox. Oh, yeah. the sex book of, of Nicholson Baker. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, Clinton yeah. gave that, to Lewinsky. Yeah, and also the great. Star Report, you know, like the 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 really the matrix for this poem was uh the Star Report, which I can remember getting the day it came out 
and I was, I read it on Amtrak. I still have my copy. It's like all these poems involve highlighter, you know? So my star report copy is like very highlightered up, read it on Amtrak, just so excited. The really horrible parts were so good. So that was like a, a, a beginning for the project really. Uh-huh. You uh, you use sort of an open field for the for the visual form of this for the way it lays on the page. Um, the others also find their own form on the page. Anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean that's. I really felt my way with that stuff. You know, thinking about Maximus poems, for example, um, and. I feel sometimes ham handed in dealing with look and feel on the page because it means, for example, this poem, the Clinton poem actually somewhat incredibly appeared in the New Yorker. And, uh, uh, it was really hard in galleys to get it look to look on that page and that typeface, the way I felt it in my head, you know, and the same thing with the Nixon poem. I think if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look, but I think that there was talk, it was in conjunctions, about running it sideways because the lines were so long in the original that there was just no way it was going to fit on the page like that. So, so that whole problem of how do you get these things to look, to have that kind of real open space-oriented layout on the page that's a big issue and, and problematic for this work. Yeah. Um, how many presidents have you written about? I can't really remember. Uh, I think it's like somewhere around 12 or 13 now, which means, well, Bob, it means I will. I, <laughs> I'm I not will, good at math. I will die before I finish the project. <laughs> oh, no. so it really is a project. You really do hope to cover all the presidents. Well, that's the ambition, and yeah, to make okay. it to put it all in one place at some point. Wow. Um, so, for your readers, do you are is part of the objective here besides? Um, you know, getting to know these those presidents via poetry, via new poetry, via now poetry, um, a way for them to reflect on the research that you've done and maybe uh, find their way into some research themselves, a deeper knowledge of the history of this place. Well, that's a great idea. That would be the best outcome. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I mean, I think it's meant to be a uh, Amer American history by alternate means, and thus to tell a different story about the, you know, the genealogy of the presidency, to think about it in a different way, and to see, you know, other, um, other kinds of concerns and issues pulsating beneath the surface of the presidency. Okay, fair enough, and. What new things did you learn about our democracy and history while working your artistry on the presidency? Well, I will say that I haven't read this Clinton poem in a long time, and it was uh, moving to me to look at it closely again. And I felt uh, when I wrote it and feel again today, you know, that that the crisis of the Lewinsky scandal is that one person, one of those two people was in love or thought she was in love at that time. She was being exploited, but she thought she was in love. And, um, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's actually, you know, a thing that, that crops up in the, um, in the transcripts. Um, and, and that causes you to remember again, sort of the, kind of dense mix of personal motivations that take place in the presidency that we don't think about. We think of the president as being, you know, 24 seven concerned with a public policy, B power, how to deploy power and the future fortunes of the person in question. But we don't often think about their emotional lives, you know, and, and to have that opportunity again, to go back there and think about, um, 
you know, how the role that affect played in all of this, um, for the people in, involved to me, that's, that's interesting. And that summons complexity of character and sort of the way that fiction writers talk about it underneath the surface of affairs of state. Well, I think that kind of some, that kind of sums it up. And, uh, so we'll, I guess we go back to our own personal affairs now. Um, thank you so much, Rick Moody, for taking us on a, on, a, on, a, on a trip through history via the presidents of the United States, via the poetry that you find in everyday words, in research, and in uh, your own creative, inspired and inspiring ways so uh, I guess we'll uh, see you soon. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes, or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com. The podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavio Roja with Rataplax podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with fundings provided by the U.S. government and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State Kathy Hochul, and the New York State Legislature. See ya.